four or five months ago, the uh, Sunday night men's group began. We'd been going through a number of books. I think the one parameter is it has to be a good old dead guy. Classic literature. And and, uh, at that point, we picked up a book on prayer and began studying prayer. And from there, um, a little bit after that period of time, a one of our home groups picked up on the theme and started studying prayer. And between those two groups, I don't know, we probably picked up four or five or six different books on prayer. And more and more, it just became, uh, it, it, well, it was, it, was, it was really immediately apparent there is just a plethora of good books on prayer. And perhaps more importantly, it points to there's a tremendous, I'm putting that wrong. As you look at the great heroes of the faith, as you look at the ministries over the centuries that have uh, have have demonstrated true fruitfulness. Individual Christian lives that have demonstrated deep abiding faith in the Lord and and fruitfulness in the callings that God gives them. You recognize that one after another, what is most entrenched in those people is a fundamental dependence on the Lord in prayer. And, you know, just to share with you a few quotes, um, there's so many. Uh, I, I was uh, looking at a Christian quote site the other day, and it was just endless, the quotes on prayer. But these four jumped out for to me, partly because they're, they're teachers that I know and respect. Um, but let me read these to you. From John Piper, prayer is the open admission that without Christ we can do nothing. And prayer is the turning away from ourselves to God in the confidence that he will provide the help we need. Prayer humbles us as needy and exalts God as wealthy. John MacArthur said, prayer is the spontaneous response of the believing heart to God. Those truly transformed by Jesus Christ find themselves lost in wonder and joy of communion with him. Prayer is as natural for the Christian as breathing. A.W. Tozer, the church that is not jealously protected by mighty intercession and sacrificial labors will before long become the abode of every evil bird and the hiding place for unsuspected corruption. The creeping wilderness will soon take over that church that trusts in its own strength and forgets to watch and pray. And from C.H. Spurgeon, O men and brethren, what would this heart feel if I could but believe that there were some among you who would go home and pray for a revival? Men whose faith is large enough and their love fiery enough to lead them from this moment to exercise unceasing intercessions that God would appear among us and do wondrous things here as in the times of former generations. Consistent among godly men and women is a devotion to prayer. The Apostle Paul said to the Ephesian church, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. One of the little books we picked up uh, from the turn of the century, not like last year turn of the century, but the other turn of the century, Reuben Torrey, he says in his book, How to Pray, he gives many, many reasons for Christians to continue an unceasing, persevering, overcoming prayer. And perhaps the greatest reason that prayer occupied a very, or perhaps the greatest reason he gives is that prayer preoccupied 
and predominated the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God committed to prayer the entirety of his earthly ministry. And so much so that the disciples, of all things that they could ask, you know, if, if, if I were going to ask the Lord something, it might be, you know, how did you do that walk on water thing? Or, or that Lazarus thing was really cool. But they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Well, maybe we ask some questions just to lead into it. If God is sovereign, you might be asking, if he ordains all things, why pray? It sounds like he's got it all covered. One reason is because he commands us to pray. He ordains prayer. The reality is, is, that, is that God in his sovereignty has established a kingdom here or, or the world here that we live in until his return, that prayer is an essential element of our connection to God. And I think the thing we most often forget, aside from the supplications that we make, prayer is for our sake. We may pray to change things, but quite literally, prayer changes us. Through it, we recognize everything comes from God. It creates an, an, an appropriate um, expectation. Our desire to seek love and serve him grows through a devotion to prayer. When we open our hearts in transparency before the Lord in prayer, it has a natural process of shunning the things that we are ashamed to present to the Lord. It has a purifying effect on our life. And we begin to pray for his benefits with gratitude. In prayer, we come to know him and we come to know, be known by him. Well, if God is sovereign, he has ordained all things, we can also ask, does prayer change things? And I love how R.C. Sproul puts this. He says, we do not change the mind of God, for God does not change. But things change. And they change according to his sovereign will, which he exercises through the secondary means and secondary activities. The prayer of his people is one of the means he uses to bring things to pass in this world. So if you ask me whether prayer changes things, I answer with an unhesitating yes. You see, yes, God is sovereign over all events. Yes, God ordains the beginning of creation to the end of creation. But within the middle, God uses means to accomplish all of his purposes. And one of those means is that we commune, connect, and depend on the Lord through prayer. He uses you and I. You know, I, as a preacher, you, you can't get away from the verse that says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. God sovereignly saves an individual, but he uses the means of a preacher to express the word of Christ so that men can be saved. And in a similar way, yes, God ordains all things, but we go before the Lord, making our petitions, crying out to him, and, and, and our dependence, reliance, crying out to God is heard by God and it is part of his sovereign will and plan. 
The very reason we pray is because God's sovereignty. We believe that God has it within his power to order things according to his purpose. That is what sovereignty is all about, ordering things according to his purpose. I think I would be very fearful if I ever thought God was not sovereign and that this world was just on some wild spin and who knows where it's going to spin off into some oblivion. But God is in charge of every molecule and within the movement of all those pieces, there's God's people praying to a loving father. Jonathan Edwards looked at it this way. He said, prayer is a, is a sensible acknowledgement of our dependence on him. Fervent prayer tends to prepare our heart. It deepens our dependence on God. And it, it grows our faith in God's sufficiency. It creates hearts prepared to glorify him when mercy received. And here's a principle that he laid out. All that God did, does, all that God does is for his glory first. And for our benefit second. We pray because God commands us to pray because it glorifies him and it benefits us. Well, I titled this message, the, the path of prayer. And I think that's what Jesus is doing. He, he, I, re, I remember when I, when I was younger and, and just introduced to the faith and didn't know what to do. And, and, I, and I saw this, this is how you pray. So I remember reading this night after night after night. Um, and I was blessed from it. But his purpose in this isn't to say this is exactly how and what you pray, but it is the principle of prayer and the elements of prayer that should always be there. I think so oftentimes we can, we can become so consumed with ourselves and our own problems and situations that prayer really becomes almost reactionary. It, 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 it's crisis management. It's, oh God, help me. I'm, I forgot that paper at home and, and what am I going to do? It is, it is meant to be something so much deeper than that. Yes, it is. God help me. I left my paper at home. It is that. He is kind. But it is so much more than that. So Jesus in this section in Matthew um, also referred to in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. This is, this is equipping the disciples how to live a life that is honoring, that is dependent, that is, is trusting and relying in God through all things. And he begins with the words, the simple words, our Father. And it suggests uh, a, immediately that we have an intimate relationship with God. He is our Father. Children listen to their Father. I'm not sure about you, but when my kid starts barking orders at me, I, I react poorly. Children listen to their Father. Children do the will of their Father. And there's another element to it that we need to keep in mind. This, this father is an, is an adoptive father. He chose to make us his children. We did, not, we did not earn this. We did not get born into it initially. We are born again into the family of God, yes. But that is nothing of our own doing. We are adopted. It's a merciful action that God does. And it is only because we are in Christ and Christ is in us 
that we go boldly before the throne of God. And then this next phrase, in heaven, it reminds us that God in heaven, he is, he is transcendent. Yes, he is present always, but he is a being unlike us. There is a holy separation between us and God that should, that should flavor our approach to his throne. We never want to go before his throne arrogant or presumptuous, boldly based on the blood of Christ, yes, but never in our own arrogance and presumed rights before God. Thirdly, he says, hallowed be your name. This is the sacred otherness of God, the holiness of God. And Christians should really desire to see that holiness guarded. That reaction when somebody uses the Lord's name as an expletive, we should just cringe and be sorrowful because we've all been there. Before we knew him, that's how we thought of God. Not much. And we so easily blasphemed the name of God. But for the Christian, this needs to be a passion, a treasure. Hallowed be your name. And it reminds us that, that this is an issue with God. Ezekiel says to, uh, in, in his book, in chapter 36, he's speaking to the house of Israel that has been, has been um, chastised by the Lord deeply. And the Lord is gonna, he, the Lord is promising a blessing. But he says this, Therefore, I say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And there's that, that attention to the glory of God. And God is not, he, he is not uh, 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 vain. It is that if we, if we do not rightly understand the holiness of God, we will never be in, in the right posture before God. In verse 26 and 27, he says, essentially, to the one who understands this. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful and be careful to obey all my rules. So there's that principle again that Jonathan Edwards talked about that God does everything first for his glory and then for our benefit. These first three principles you could really look at our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and See, see that they, they, they are first and foremost, and this isn't by accident that the Lord Jesus Christ puts this up in front when he is teaching us to pray, is that he is establishing the relationship that we have before the Lord. That to understand this, to keep this straight before we go any further, it establishes the Father. It establishes him relationally, between us and him, 
It establishes him positionally. This is the Father in heaven. It establishes him, this is a big word, teleologically. Or it establishes what his being or essence is. He is holy. And we are not. It is important that we understand our relationship with the Lord, who he is, who we are, and who we are not. Is this the tone that begins my prayer with the Lord? This is such a great corrective. And, and I don't mean it, I apologize if I, if I sound like, uh, my wife tells me I sometimes do this, but I slip into a scold, and I don't mean it to be a scold. This is the Lord encouraging the church. This is the Lord encouraging his disciples. He wants them to be blessed. He wants them to come to him. And when we see the Lord in his, in his proper state, we are blessed. Well, the next section, I would say, the Lord in this prayer turns the focus into kingdom principles. He says, your kingdom come. And we can ask the question, is the kingdom of God a reality in my life? Do I, do I live my life day in and day out that there is a kingdom of God, it exists, there is a ruler to that kingdom, and he is firmly on his throne. It's a great question to ask. In our, in our moments of anxiety, in our moments of fear and panic and, and anger, It's a, it's a really great time to ask myself, is the kingdom of God a reality in my heart? Is that how I'm walking through life? Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is king and Lord over the church. Jesus is king over the universe. That reality, brothers and sisters, is not believed or acknowledged by the world. And we pray that that kingdom would be visible on earth. And we pray that the Lord would cause us to be faithful and to be part of proclaiming that kingdom. Jesus, being king of the universe, calls us to repentance and live in newness of life. Remember John, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Our nation, interestingly enough, is sort of, when you think about it, built on a resistance to sovereignty. Certainly a rejection of the monarchy if you go back a few hundred years. Jesus is king. That reality, not believed or acknowledged, and this rebellion is clearly depicted, um, most interestingly, I think, in Psalm 2. Verses 2 through 3, it says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And God's response in, in verses four through six says, he who sits on the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Jesus is king. So why do we pray your kingdom come? We pray your kingdom come so that we would see a manifestation of the kingdom of God. 
we pray for a manifestation of the reign of Christ and the kingdom of God and that it would begin in our own lives here on earth. He goes on to say, your will be done. Jesus prayed to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. It was an acknowledgement of our Lord Jesus Christ's submission to the Father, to his sovereign foreordained will. And this should, this should always be our posture when we go before the Lord in prayer, should it not? God does not change. We acknowledge his sovereignty over all things and humbly submit to him. I've had a card on my computer for, I think, almost 20 years. I'm not sure if I... I really have to think of why this, this verse... I think it just gives me absolute strength and assurance in the sovereignty of God. But I have a little card, Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That is, that is a, a comforting promise, is it not? The question is not, will God's plan stand? It will stand. And the better question is, am I trusting and submitting to his plan? Your will be done is a prayer of obedience for God's people. And then he says, on earth, as it is in heaven. In heaven, God has obeyed. His servants move and act exactly according to his will. On earth, not so much. In heaven, God's servants obey his prescriptive will. On earth, not so much. How often is our, is our will when we go before the Lord in prayer in conflict with the will of the Father? What, what is the will of the Father? There's many places you can look to, but to share just a couple thoughts... 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. There's an encyclopedia in those words. This is the will of God, your sanctification. God is at, God is at work sanctifying us, preparing us for an eternity, an eternity in his presence. That'll boggle your mind for a weekend at least. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, give thanks in all circumstances, all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I can't help but confess that many of my prayers is that God would remove the very circumstances from my life that he is using to sanctify me. Is that not upside down? I know none of you guys experienced anything like that. You know, when we read and, 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 and Peter, all the, all the apostles shared in one form or another to express joy or thanksgiving or acceptance of difficulty and trial. And and, and, and as, we, as we look at this whole testimony, and all these pieces are, are, are woven together, if, if we would rightly see that God is sovereign, that, that God ordains over all things, that his kingdom is present, that he will accomplish all of his plan, we, we, we would not get so distraught over the difficulties of our life. We would, we would immediately see them as God working 
in a merciful and gracious way in our life. He's working towards our sanctification. We give thanks for all circumstances, for all those appointments through the week that kept me from being able to study, doctor's appointments, dialysis trips, hurt backs, this and that. I'll be honest with you, I came to the end of the week and, and I, I, was, I, I, was, I was somewhat frustrated in this study. And, and I, I was asking, Lord, I mean, I really wanted to preach. John gave me this uh, opportunity. And, uh, and, and, and he needed me to do this so he could fulfill his calling. But Lord, you're putting all these roadblocks in front of me. All these circumstances, they're not right. I don't think you understand. You're not doing this right. Full transparency. I was before the Lord and just so frustrated. And... Suddenly, with all clarity, I heard, not an audible voice, I'd been here all week. There was not one minute in this week you could not have prayed. There is not one moment you could not come before my throne. The Lord is good, amen? Peter put it this way. My little note added, change your way of thinking so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. These last three requests are really a heart cry to be submitted, to be obedient to the prescriptive and ordained will of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, says Peter. Jesus is telling us this humble, trusting spirit should flavor all of our petitions we bring before the Father. But it is more than submission to obedience. It's desire. The Lord, the Lord wants to get at our heart. We pray the Lord would create in us a desire for his will over ours, a passion for his plans, not ours. I'll tease, Lord willing, I think my text for next week, John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That is an unbelievable promise. And, it, and it's not a metaphor. It's not like, he means it literally. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If we understand that aright, it will change our lives, it will change our church, it will change our world. Well, next in this last section, you, you might call this, this is really the first of any personal supplications. Up to this point, he hasn't made any personal requests. 
It's all about God. It's all about God's purpose. It's all about God's, God's plans for his kingdom. Give us this day our daily bread, he says. So he gives us the supplication, the first request. Isn't it amazing how humble it is? How small it is? It's not a request for daily steak. It's not even a request for daily hamburger, daily bread. Why so small? Shouldn't we think big? Our God is big. I can think big. It is an acknowledgement that no matter how small, if we receive or if we receive nothing at all, what we ask, his provision is always perfect. His provision is always enough. You know, Paul said he has learned how to live with, with, with nothing and he has learned to live with plenty. The reality is, is that sometimes in life we have a lot and that, that brings its own problems. I mean, we've all known about or heard about the warnings of, uh, uh, of the dangers of, of being rich. Most people I don't think can handle it. I'm not sure I could. But God's provision is always perfect. My greatest anxiety and frustration come from really, if I'm honest, come from my own unmet expectation and my own so-called needs. If I, if I were to remove all those things that I manufacture, God has always provided. I have in my head how things should work, what things I need, how things should be fixed. Jesus teaches us to pray in such a way that we acknowledge his provision is always perfect. It's always enough. Jesus also reminds us that our most basic needs come from God. You know, I get that special deal and, you know, the car comes through or, or the job comes through or some huge thing. And, you know, that, those are really easy to say, oh, thank you, Lord, for that. There it goes. I just breathed a breath. You know, do it. that comes from the Lord. He sustains me moment by moment. My, my body, my every molecule, you know, the... the the, the picture that Jesus draws of uh, every hair on your head or every sparrow that falls, these are realities. These are realities that really can transform the way we think, what concerns us. God wants to destroy our delusions of self-sufficiency and dependence from him, independence from him. I can tell you our family has been through many seasons where we wondered if we were going to make it. Psalm 37 has, has oftentimes been an encouragement to me. Verse 25, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have, I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. You know, That scripture has blessed me so many times just to meditate on the fact, really to, to pare it all down in the midst of my anxiety and worry. You know, Michael, what really are you worried about? What, what are you lacking at the moment? I have a house. I have, I have clothing. I have, I have food. And, and, and uh, on top of that, a bazillion blessings of family and friends and a church. 
I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. I've lost track of how many times and how many unexpected ways God has faithfully provided for our family's needs. We have walked right up to the edge, but we've never fallen. He is sufficient. Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Proverbs 30, verse 8, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither property nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. The Israelites give us an incredible lesson. Those poor Israelites, they really get beat up in print, don't they? Remember, God miraculously provided for the people, saving them from, from slavery in Egypt, miraculously brought them out. And when they said, you just brought us out here to starve us to death, God said, nope, I'm going to miraculously provide manna, food for you every day. And you're going to learn something that you've never learned before. Every single day you are dependent upon me. That's going to be lesson one in the desert. You have to depend on me every single day. You can't do this alone. You can't walk 10 feet with me and then walk off. So what happened? Interestingly enough, first they stopped thanking him for his provision. Second, they stopped asking him for his provision. Third, they began grumbling about his provision. Is this all you're going to give us? Manna? Finally, they began reminiscing about how good things used to be. The good life back in Egypt. They forgot about the oppression the hardships, the tortures that they endured at Pharaoh's hand. It really can sound pretty similar if you think about it. I don't think the Israelites are alone, not in my experience. When I don't trust God in his provision, when I reject the goodness that he provides, I begin to grumble. And amazingly, somehow I alter how life used to be apart from Christ. And sometimes it actually seems attractive. Amazingly so. We can even yearn for the old life before Christ, amazingly. So... Gratitude for God's provision. And then he goes on to say, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our, 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 our debtors. And it's really a principle throughout Scripture that is taught over and over again that God will judge us according to how we judge others or he will be merciful to us according to how we are merciful to others. Many verses teach us this. When we are eagerly gracious towards others, it is a clear sign we have received grace from the Lord. It is a, it's a confirmation of our conversion and the grace of God that we acknowledge that has been poured out in our own life. This principle is displayed in the story Jesus told. We all know it in Matthew 18, the two debtors. So there's two men, and, and, and the one man, as you, as you remember, had a debt that was so great, there was no possibility of repaying it. it. Somebody calculated that it was an equivalent of $10 million. He had no ability to repay this, this debt. And there was another man who owed the equivalent of about $18. One thing I'd never picked up on before is that both men, what they ask for is for more time. 
They didn't, they didn't actually ask just to write off the debt. They said, give me more time and I'll, and I'll pay you back. Well, the first guy, that's ridiculous. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if he has 10 years, 100 years. He's never paying it back. He's not, he's not even acknowledging his debt and his position before um, the one he owes his debt to. The other, it's a reasonable, it's a very reasonable request. You know, $18 and, you know, give me a couple of weeks. I'll, I'll get it to you. And the first man who owns this unsolvable debt receives, ha, has it completely absolved, wiped out. He didn't ask for that, but that's what he got. No debt, free and clear. And almost before he stepped out the door, he was throwing the next guy in prison, demanding the $18. No mercy in his heart. And this cannot be with believers who know the reality. Sometimes we feel this way about other people. They have, they have a debt against us, and we're not going to let it go. They need to pay us back somehow. The reality is any debt owed to us by our fellow man is infinitely less than the forgiveness bestowed on us through the blood of Christ for our debt before God, infinitely less. It's just not worth even thinking about. Have you received forgiveness of your sins through the shed blood of Christ upon the cross and no longer face eternal judgment and have received eternal life in heaven? Forgive even as you have been forgiven. I think there's one, one last thing regarding forgiveness that is worth touching on. If the Lord has forgiven you, you must forgive yourself. Some believers, though they have confessed faith in Christ, they've received his forgiveness continue to hang on to guilt and shame in their life. And in reality, there's an, there's an arrogance to this. It suggests that the sufferings of Christ weren't enough, that you need to experience some level of penance But Jesus is sufficient. It reminds us to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, the realities of the gospel. Therefore, there is now no condemnation in Christ. Paul, in speaking to the Corinthians, acknowledging that in their previous life they committed all forms of sin and debauchery, and of those lifestyles, he says... And such were some of you. There's a reality to it. Yeah, there's history. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul to the Ephesians, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Believer, confess your sins and then cast them upon the Lord. For Christ's sake, do not hold on to your guilt and shame. 
it will give you no comfort. 2 Corinthians 6.16 From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then in verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is sufficient. He's sufficient for your sins. He's sufficient for my sins. And then lastly, he says, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, we know Jesus isn't talking about tempting us. The Bible says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Satan tempts us. We're tempted by the world. We're tempted by our own lusts. God tests us, but he doesn't tempt us. He tests us, and that for our good, and not for evil. These two requests really are one. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. They're, they're a singular supplication. How often we walk through life oblivious to the danger that continually stalks us. I think it's because we don't, we don't fully understand that where, where Paul is saying, put on the full armor of God. We battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of the air. We sometimes just lose sight of what the real battle is and the real danger that is out there. And it's a, and it's a spiritual danger. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So our prayer is to the Lord that he would, he would protect us. We forget we live in enemy ter territory, don't we? We keep thinking this is home. We're strangers and aliens. This is not our home. Apart from the Lord, it's a very dangerous place. If you were to get on a plane and fly over to Afghanistan, I, I doubt seriously you would just hop off and start hiking down the street saying, woo, great trees, love the paths. You, you would know you are in enemy territory and you are, you are surrounded by evil. or danger, I should say. You know, I love how John Piper explains the purpose of prayer. And it's, I, I actually couldn't find the, the quote, but, um, but uh, paraphrased, it goes, prayer is not a line to hotel room service, but a forward battle position radio to call in mortar rounds from HQ. Jesus is teaching us to ask the Father to build a hedge around us. Protect us from the evil that surrounds us. And we seek God's intercession continually. Even Peter is a great example of this from the Gospels. Simon, Simon, Jesus says, Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, break you into pieces. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
the Lord Jesus Christ is interceding on our behalf continually. And we should be asking the Lord for his protection continually. Well, church, Jesus gave his disciples and all believers a precious gift in these principles in prayer. And, I, and how easy it is to, to, to hear a principle, acknowledge it as good and true, and never apply it. But I pray that through the next week, you, you think about these things. Open up Matthew 6, verse 5. Read through that text over and over again. Ask the Lord that, that he would cause these principles to flavor all of your petitions before the Lord as you go before him and rely on him. And if you doubt these things, if you're hearing some of this and maybe you're saying, yeah, Prayer doesn't mean anything. Prayer doesn't do anything. Well, apart from being a child of God, it doesn't do a whole lot. But as a child of God, it is the very power of God or a means of the power of God. There's a reality we have to focus we, we have there's a reality we have to accept before we start making requests. Paul said in Romans, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. That's the condition of each and every one of us before coming to Christ. The entire world but even then, there is a prayer open to us for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you have not prayed that prayer, I pray you pray that and then pursue Christ with every ounce of your ability and energy, praying always. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this study. You are good and glorious. You are all-knowing, all-powerful. You are sovereign. You are merciful and kind, Father God. As your apostle said, we live and breathe and have our being in you. Father, though we, we oftentimes do not acknowledge you, you are so kind and so merciful, so patient. Father, we pray your kingdom come. We pray hallowed be your name. Father, we pray that you would equip your church to proclaim your gospel where you have placed us right here, Grace Bible Church in the community of Hollister. Father, we know each and every person here today is ordained to be here. We pray each day we would walk in the confidence that you have ordained it each and every circumstance that we would trust you in it and we would glorify you in it. Christ's name we pray. Amen.